Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, the J10 Initiative. What is that? I, okay, I think we're recording. Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 Initiative. I guess I am repeating if I say a J10 Initiative. Well, it's a special Holy Saturday episode. Well, we're recording on Holy Saturday. I don't think this will be published for another month or so. Oh, nice. I'm Father Mike, and I am here with Father Sean Conroy, the great. Hineni. Hineni, yes. Oh, I like it. That's um, Hebrew for here I am. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. That's right. I don't know that part in Hebrew. Just Hineni is here I am. Hineni, here I am. Well, it's got the connotation and everything. Um, do it, what? We have to give you some introduction, right? Sure. Father Sean Conroy is like a great guy. He's a companion. He's a, a, a priest in his first year, finishing his first year yep. as a priest. Yeah, May 15th. He is a kid out of the South Denver like me and like Nepal and I don't know about Machado's from like mid-Denver. Yeah. Yeah, but a local dude. Um, he is a... Um, kind of semi-pro tennis player who um, retired is not it refuses to play me is constantly talking trash but refuses to play uh, me you still owe me a tennis match right uh, i've heard this for years but tennis was never my love hockey was my love is it mm-hmm. oh yeah. well i kind of did know that you played hockey but i didn't know that you had a love tennis tennis i just kind of did when i was in high school my brother actually played tennis in college He's doubles or singles in college or me no you i played doubles in high school Who's your tennis partner? Guy named Trent Streetelmeyer, my senior year and junior year, I believe. Okay. I don't know. I lose track. Did you? Were you assigned together? Or did you choose? We kind of both. There's usually the way. I mean, you played tennis in high school, didn't you? Yeah. For but I think we Regis? chose yeah Jared Smythe, and I played. But we were kind of like I don't know. We were more like the walk on. Not there were two two tiers, mm-hmm. and our top tier, whatever our top team, were like state champions. Yeah, and then we were we were like we showed up to play some tennis and have some fun and compete, and we did pretty good. But it wasn't like we were, you know, kind of moving toward the top team. Yeah, so and Mullen, it was just like I hadn't played, I hadn't trained for a long time. You know, Mullen was we played a lot of five A, but then for state we were playing four uh, A. So, like, we would play all these hard teams. Like, we played Regis, and then I think Regis would normally win. I can't remember if we beat them or not. But, um, yeah, for, for state, then we were 4A, so then we would do pretty well at state every year because we weren't playing Cherry Creek. And you were playing doubles. Were you a pretty good team, like complementary with your skills? Yeah, so he's a lefty, Trent. And oh. he, uh, yeah, he could. It, it was fun, right, because he puts the spin on the opposite direction and uh, our junior, my junior year, his sophomore year, we actually got second at state for number two doubles. Oh, cool, nice. Senior year, we were number one doubles, and we didn't do as well. There's like a ladder. Yeah, so that's what it's I was almost say. like if, if you think of a symphony, there's like a first uh, violin and then a second violin, mm-hmm. and then they'll play, you know, other teams same same like level or rank or whatever. Yeah, except the teams that stack, but that's a different story. Oh, boy. I'm just bitter about it. All right, right. we're really going deep on this tennis. <laughs> yeah, why are we talking about tennis? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to introduce you, and I'm, I don't know, I'm curious about tennis. Um, hockey, though. Mm-hmm. What position did you play? Mostly defense. I preferred right wing, but... Were you always as tall as you are? Father I'll... Sean is a pretty tall dude. That's right, 6'5", the one and only. But he's also not like real thick. 
You're not like a heavy dude. You know what I mean? It, aren't hockey players like? Yeah, I was always pretty guys? scrawny. Yeah, I didn't. You're almost like. You, did you ever play the Nintendo game that has hockey? It's got four players. There's uh-huh. like the tall guy who's skinny, and then there's the fat short guy, and then there's two kind of average. No, I played 2K Sports. Oh, okay. You have to remember, I'm way younger than I you. I know. Well, I had. I do have to remember that. Are you? You're more than a decade younger. Mm-hmm. No, thirty nine. Uh, you're 39. Yeah, I'm 27. Oh no! So I make fun of Nepple for this as yeah, well. He's going to really turn. Are a baby. He's going to turn 40 before I turn 30, and it's like the bane of his existence. I don't think I can say you could be my son. Not that much younger. Not that close, but the way biology works, it's possible. Oh boy. Um, so you're playing hockey, tall and lanky, and uh, but that's your first love. I, I'm, there's something really stinky about the equipment and I love hockey too. Yeah. I played in college seminary. We used to play pond hockey yeah. a lot in Winona and we would play against the schismatic Pius the 10th guys from up the hill. Nice. And it was so fun. We would play all the time in, in winter, but, uh, that wasn't like, you know, full on pads, all that stuff. And I've never tried that. I wouldn't, it's one of those things where like I I wish I could go back in time and play hockey and play football. Yeah. But I was tiny. I was tiny in high school, so yeah. it's not like I could have done much. But sure. I was a good um, uh, stick handler. Mm. You know, you kind of adapt. If you can't smash someone, you figure out how to get around them. Well, usually the small guys are the quickest guys. They're your speed skaters. They're the ones who can, yeah, deke well and, and stick handle well oh, and get deke, around people. Oh, dude. Deke and that dangle. That makes me think of uh, so I have this Mighty Ducks, Triple Deke. That's... Mighty Ducks. What a great movie. I have a bumper sticker on my car that says bar down and selly hard, which uh, is a hockey uh, thing. And no one knows what it means. In fact, I had this guy come up to me. <laughs> bar down and selly hard. Selly hard. Yep. Do you know what okay, that means? No. What did your guy do the other day? So he, he asked me, he was just like, oh, bar down and celly hard. Oh, Father Sean, you play the cello. And I'm like, oh, cool. I was like, yeah, I play the cello. No. That's one down and cello hard. Yeah, That's seriously, a great, I was like, that is a great line, cello hard. So definitely don't play the cello. Definitely don't have much musical talent, but bar down and silly hard. Yeah, no, I don't know what that means. What does it mean? So in hockey, when the puck hits the crossbar, right? So the net has two posts and then the crossbar. If the puck hits the crossbar and then goes in, that's bar down. And then celly is just celebration. That's kind of a hockey lacrosse uh. term. Bar down, it makes the most uh, like amazing noise in hockey, and it just like totally embarrasses the goalie because it like you usually shoot right above the goalie's shoulder or something like that. They just they can't get their glove up there, uh, and they can't really yeah they can't block it very well. Hits the bar, goes in, everyone goes crazy. Well, and it's a it's a pretty good aim if you can catch those corners because mm-hmm. the goalie. I mean, you got the whole width of the goalie right. is in the way. And there's now there's been what's rules. the easiest shot that five hole. Five hole. The only way to make five hole is to get the goalie moving. So you have okay. to like kind of get the like if you do a one timer or something like that. Um, but I always found that um, blocker side was usually a good side to shoot. Glove they can kind of move the glove a little bit more and catch it. I'm amazed the by that. It's almost like uh, instant reaction. Those those quick. What oh, do they call it? Quick motion muscles or something? Quick twitch. Oh, uh, yeah. Fast twitch fast muscles. Fast twitch muscles. Yeah. Man, to get Goalies that glove. Are, oh yeah, it's it's crazy. They did um, the the knee pads or the whatever those are called the shin pads on on goalies. A few years back, they put a regulation that they could only be a certain width. Um, 
you know, so they're always kind of making rules about how big pads can be and all that stuff. But I don't know. It's super fun. I love hockey. What about uh, Kale McCarr? What do you think of Kale McCarr? He's probably the best player in the NHL right He's now. He's amazing. He's super young, super talented. And he can shoot from that outside. He's just ripping it up. He's ripping it up. But, you know. Do you do that? Were you a scoring defenseman? Yeah, I had a pretty good shot. Again, I always preferred right wing just because I loved. I was fast. But I was big. So kind of when I could probably got into high school, maybe sophomore year is when I really started playing defense full time up through senior year. And then, um, yeah, I, I stopped playing. I didn't play in college. I went to seminary. My uh, my my uh, passion or whatever you want to call it, my uh, priorities were in a different place. So, yeah, defense. But, you know, it's crazy. Did you see DU one? DU, no. youngest coach in NCAA uh, for hockey as well as – uh, youngest team NCAA and they were always pretty good though do you they think? are but they have the youngest team right now uh, and they were not expected who'd to win. they beat for the championship in the frozen four they beat Minnesota Duluth in the finals oh. they beat Minnesota State and watching the game the announcers the announcers were like uh DU is like totally getting dominated Minnesota Duluth is going to win Minnesota State's going to win they beat Duluth in uh overtime and then they beat uh, state five to one they scored all five goals in the third period it was absolutely incredible to watch wow. and the best part about this is the head coach for du goes to he's catholic he goes to the parish oh to your parish yep oh or, you know the guy i do know the guy Can you i mean uh, i'll pay but i want to i want to go to one of these games let's go so can we hook it up and oh for sure go to one of these games i've been sitting right here by one of the best hockey programs in the world in the world do you yeah and i don't ever go Let's i've go. never been to a, a game there yeah yeah so i only went to one this year i'm hoping to go again in the fall but so i like this i don't understand why denver's so um good but i my grand my grandfather was born in duluth and mm. my uh, grandparents lived in duluth and for a long time and i think university of minnesota um or minnesota state could be in mankato where my dad grew up okay. and it's Mankato state is where he went. Um, so this like long tradition, Minnesota schools are very good. And then Denver out in the middle of the desert and nowhere, like why yeah. Minnesota makes sense. Like the kids grow up playing pond hockey, mm-hmm. the fields, you just flood the field. Cause it's so cold there that it stays, you know, yeah. like there's a rink on every corner. It's like basketball in New York or something. So, but I don't know why Denver. Is there just enough Minnesotans who have come moved here? Yeah, I honestly don't know. But DU has always been kind of a, a magnet for D1 hockey specifically. Some other sports as well. They're they're really good at lacrosse as well. Right. But I don't know what it is about hockey. I mean, hockey is big in Colorado if you're in the circle. If you're not really in the circle, it, it seems pretty small. Um, but it is, it is a big deal at DU. Um, I don't know what, what draws it, but a lot of those athletes are you know they're from alaska minnesota wisconsin kind of your your typical hockey places um but they have some locals as well some folks from denver who um, go there after high school or after playing yeah. semi-pro and it's a good it's a good like young program here like you played in and the high schools and stuff mm-hmm. yeah um and leagues or there's like leagues for kids yeah so there's definitely leagues leagues tend to be a little bit more common in colorado high school hockey is not as big of a deal as it is up north like minnesota high school hockey is everything in minnesota typically it's changing a little bit in colorado now but when i was in high school if you were good at hockey you did not play high school you played in club hockey 
Whereas in Minnesota, if you're good at hockey, you're playing high school. Yeah. And playoff season gets so crazy up in Minnesota, as you probably remember, Wisconsin as well, where they they uh, they're playing these high school games. They're broadcasting these high school hockey games for state on national tell or at least local television yeah, local tv yeah which is crazy you know yeah they just love it love it love it all right well we've been talking about hockey forever uh <laughs> i could talk about hockey all day <laughs> i know well that's true um yeah there's time hopefully there's time we're gonna we got father sean conroy agreed to uh podcast throughout the summer and uh for a number of months we're trying to try out this young blood of uh companions and give the give the guys a chance to um chime in about catholic stuff and then um he's we're, we're looking for longer term hosts but it's kind of a tryout period for different guys and see if they like it so um father sean is a good uh fun guy holy holy guy um dedicated he's got this funny um kind of uh two-faced personality or what, what do you call it jekyll and hyde no it's because it's not you don't have an evil side he just has this serious sean and then this like fun and goofy sean and I, what do they call it summer sean yeah well that's what nepple nicknamed it uh summer sean and seminary sean yeah someone was telling me about this but father father nepple he preached my first first mass at uh saint francis carini and and he said those terms don't exist anymore because now it's just father sean so yes. um but no it's true like during during the school year i'd really like buckle down and really you know not have as much fun and then during the summers i'd go a little crazy yeah uh which is good now like there's you, just father sean yeah because I mean, I your summers are gone is that the idea more or less or yeah. because priestly life integrates everything i think so automatically more so the latter Hopefully. Well, hopefully. Yeah, I was going to say, like, well, that's pretty simplistic to say. As soon as you get ordained, everything is, like, balanced in life. Um, but, yeah, so there's a chance. I am hoping that, you know, one of the fun things for me about the podcast is just a chance to hang out and get to know each other. Yeah. It can be, like, a, a somewhat self-conscious experience of, like, I'm performing something for someone. And I don't want it to be that. And I say that for myself. Like I got into this rhythm and with Father John and Father uh, Nathan. And this became part of like a, t a kind of a reason we took a break, among other things. But it was like this is happening so infrequently and with the same people that it's like just part of work. It became work and in, in some ways. And so it's almost like I'm going to come and present a class. And teach something and i don't like that i don't want to do that you know it hopefully we'll be doing this for years and years and my hope is more like just to have a conversation once yeah. upon a time it was like that and i think with the new blood it might be uh, kind of returning to that i mean we're always going to have something that we're hoping to teach or kind of focus a conversation around but I see it as an opportunity to hang out with you and then get to know you too. So hopefully you're not overwhelmed by the idea of, um, I don't know, having an audience or something. Um, I don't know. You're a public person. And this is pretty easy being hanging out in a studio. But I do try to avoid vocal pauses. Mm. And I, that's not natural to me in everyday life. But you know what that you know what I mean? Like ums? Like, uh, yeah. So, um, well... So, you know, totally all that stuff. Totally. Yeah. I have been definitely working on that and preaching. It's hard. It's, it's hard when tough. everyone's like looking at you and 
you know oh, i can't get my glasses on straight how do you how do you like preaching i love it it's been definitely a a learning curve um a lot of priests say you don't really find your voice so to speak in preaching until you're about a year in and that's where i am now so may 15th will be my first year anniversary and yeah i feel like i'm finally starting to really find a groove and a rhythm i'm also with one of the best preachers maybe the best preacher in the diocese dare i say and um and so it it was definitely a little nerve-wracking for me at first of like wow i get i have to follow I have big shoes to fill, so to speak, you know, yeah. at, our, at Our Lady of Lords, And yeah, there, there have been some homilies where I'm just like, I did not do that very well, you know, for various reasons. Maybe I didn't prepare the best, uh, but a lot of it is just like, I don't know how to preach yet. And the more I've done it, you do it week in, week out. And then daily mass, you do it every day. You start to learn like, okay, this is what works. This is what doesn't work. This is what's natural for me. Maybe this kind of tactic is not good. And I feel like I'm just starting to kind of settle in there. Now I'm still in my first year. So like tomorrow, uh, Easter Sunday, this will be my first Easter preaching. I have no idea what to preach on. <laughs> I need to pray about that more this afternoon. But yeah. these are just like such deep mysteries that how do you how do you encapsulate it? You know, and you can't, you know, you pick one thing. But even then, it's like, how do you what do you pick? What do you choose from? Yeah, right. There's so much in terms of like a the different steps to preparing a homily of what, you know, just like brainstorming and then praying. I, this is kind of how this is my process. It's, it's usually brainstorming in the chapel and letting something sink. Yeah. I'm interested in this. I feel drawn to this. I'm not sure why, but this is kind of where I want to be. Once I get to know my people, cause I think audience is really important to me. Then I feel like drawn to certain ideas or themes or whatever then it can be a matter of like well how could i present that or what else does this apply to um is there a story are there father brian really uses quotes Mm -hmm. he's very like uh, interested in the intelligence of other people who you can kind of play with and riff on. So reading the great fathers and theologians and contemporary philosophy and these kinds of um, quotes, I really admire that and see that as part of his style. Um, But yeah, you're right. There's just so much. Luckily, there's a lot to work with. But there's also, yeah, how do I, what what do I want to do? What do I want to say? How do I like to preach? And I think if you're humble enough, you can really learn from being in someone's shadow and and recognize I have 50 years ahead as a priest. So if I'm finding my voice or finding my style, there's time to experiment. I'm so wacky that I'm going to experiment all the time and have through life, and I like that. That's almost my style is I want to try something different. Yeah. Um, but Father Brian is very, like, he, he's got his form pretty well dialed in and kind of like turned into a template and then it's the question of how does he want to fill that and um you know with a combination of praying and teaching and um this he does this weird breathe through the teeth thing when he laughs or whatever yeah so also he also cries a lot which i don't mind i think it's good he still does oh yeah a lot of times that's kind of like a phase that's true. Um, it was for other priests, but 
Maybe it's just a really long Do you think it's real? I do think it's real. That's kind of a mean question. It's definitely real. (laughs) I do too. Um, Yeah, because you were assigned there for a while. You were under him too. I had two years. I wasn't under him. Technically, I was assigned in residence. That's right. So I wasn't working even for the parish technically, but I did most of the, you know, um, sacramental things at Mm -hmm. the parish. And we worked together pretty well. And I think I was pretty helpful. But it was also like the second year was COVID and everything stopped and got weird right so it was just yeah different kind of life but yeah oh i loved my time there Mm. i really loved it and i think it's a very um it's a place filled with a lot of possibilities and the people are very kind and they're also very serious about the the spiritual life there's a school so there's a lot of joy in the atmosphere and then um I think there's a relatively low amount of problems. Mm. Um, you won't gather that from the pastor. <laughs> and that's, you know, they're, they're stuck with all the logistical problems and everything. But I've seen a lot of places that are, or enough places that are really bogged down with mm. financial problems and personnel conflict and, um, yeah, just like an, all kinds of old old guard that wants to be dramatic and um and there were parishes that have just lost a lot of people or interest ah, there's all kinds of reasons why yeah. it can be really tough um but every parish has its goods and its bads and i think lords is a great great place to be a young priest for sure yeah no it's been a great assignment great gift um first year first year of priesthood and and assignment is just so you know powerful and so important but i do want to obviously say as well if i haven't yet that I'm parochial vicar Our Lady Lords as well as St. Louis. So the two parishes that Father Brian oversees both as pastor and then I'm parochial vicar of both. That's right. And I like that there's a combo too because I think one thing, one feature of Lords is that people are sort of in the prime of life, as they say, you know, the prime of life. And so there's not a lot of like, there's not as much um, suffering in that atmosphere in that situation than a lot of parishes where people are regularly dying and a lot of old people and um or lots of poverty like my assignment is kind of street grit and um that's not to say that there isn't we have families and stuff but um it's different demographics are always and i think part of your formation as a young priest is in the pastoral life is the formation of the heart Mm. How can you love? How can you be compassionate? How can you unite your sufferings with the people and care for people in theirs? Um, there's a lot of like education that goes on at that parish. And, um, and that's really important too. You know, we're, we're there to uh, teach, sanctify and govern. Right. Mm. And I think part of the sanctification and the governance is to come to know people in the human experience and then teaching is, yeah, kind of the realm of the ideas. Um, but I guess they're all related. And then just being a pastor. I mean, I, there's something we're in the seminary right now, and it's they have a vision statement. I don't know. something. They told me something about how we're trying to form hearts after the heart of Christ the shepherd. Is that right? Sounds right, yeah. Something about the shepherd. Um yeah. Because there's the vision statement and the mission statement, and those are two different uh, things. I should get those down. I'm going to get so. in trouble for that as a... Well, I'm not on faculty. I am on faculty, but I'm not a formator, so... 
Right. I'm teaching the guys the head stuff. All right. How about this? We got to get it? into a little topic, but I want to keep rolling with the suffering thing because I've been thinking about suffering, mm. and particularly the inner, the power of suffering. I guess um, I read once Sister Faustina, who uh, Saint Faustina, who wrote this diary where Jesus was appearing to her and t- talking to her in this really loving way, and she would um, she would take down all of the conversations that they would have in her diary. And it eventually led to the promotion of the Divine Mercy devotion. And John Paul, uh, Pope John Paul, this was, St. Faustina is a a Polish nun. And so um, St. John Paul the Great, well, can I say the Great? John Paul II um, promoted this, this Divine Mercy devotion and set it as the Sunday after Easter. So it's got like this very central place now. It's become something very important because John Paul made it something very important. Right. But she said, if the angels could envy, they would envy our ability to take the Eucharist and to suffer. Mm. And they can't, right? They can't do those two things. But it's always intrigued me to say this thing about the suffering. Why would angels envy suffering? Why would anyone envy suffering? And so I'm kind of wrestling with that these days in my prayer, in my thought, in my life, watching both in my personal life and then also in my pastoral life of like suffering with people and loving them in their suffering and trying to, people come to the priest and say, well, what do I do with this? I'm miserable about this thing. Or my friend is, is hurt or whatever. Can you do something about it? And I'm like, well, I don't, like what? Yeah, I don't know how to answer that. There's a lot of things that I feel a lot more confident about responding to. So yeah, have you heard that quote? Yeah, I have. I actually thought, um, I thought that was a Chesterton quote and maybe, maybe there's a play there or maybe they just didn't know, you know, because Chesterton was uh, English, but Chesterton. Maybe Jesus tells this to a lot of people. Right. Who knows? Um, but Chesterton has a quote. Yeah. If, if, if angels could be jealous of man for one reason, it would be the fact that um, we can take communion. Um, so he doesn't say the suffering Maybe she, part. Yeah. Sister Faustina. She's so like she added Chesterton. To it. Um, but it was funny. So we have, there's a third priest right at our parish, two parochial vicars, one, one pastor, Father Vitold uh, Keshmashik is the other parochial vicar. So he's from Poland. And he was joking at, at mass the other day, he's just like, Jesus only speaks Polish. See, he speaks Polish to sister, to St. Faustina, uh, which is so funny. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is, this is something that I get asked as well, that we've been asked a lot as priests of like, because in Catholic cultures, everyone oftentimes says, just offer it up. Yeah, exactly. Offer your sufferings That's what up. what does that mean? Mm. What does that mean to offer up your sufferings? And people come to the priest and they say, people tell me just to offer it up. How do I do that? And I think I, there's multiple things I'll say, but usually the first thing I say is just just tell Jesus that. Just say, Jesus, I give you this. Mm. Jesus, I offer this to you. Um, but I think that's like very ethereal still. I think it's just kind of vague of like, what does it mean to really offer yeah, offer your sufferings up to the Lord? And what does that mean spiritually? Yeah. Why does he want this? Offer it. It's like sounds like a gift. Mm-hmm. Here, you can have this. Why don't you unwrap the the ribbons and like surprise? Right, you have my broken leg. Right, and why would suffering even be a gift to begin with? Yeah. So, so I think um, 
Yeah, and enviable. So this has been on my mind because we have both of those features back to back in Holy Week, right? So we're on Holy Saturday right now, and we're we're recording, and we've just lived through two days of Jesus's life with the liturgy of the 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 Catholic rhythm and our rituals draws us into kind of reenacting the life of Jesus. So on this day, there's a week when he comes into Jerusalem and then he's preparing, knowing that he's going to die and he's got his friends and disciples who are with him, learning about and watching his life. And then later when they're writing their gospels, they're reflecting on um, what happened. And the, and then, and then in the course of history, the, followers of Jesus, the Christians, have reenacted this week in one particular time of the year. So um, two of those days are Holy Thursday and Good Friday. Now we're in Holy Saturday, and then we'll have Easter Sunday. So on Thursday, Jesus has his Last Supper with his disciples, and then he institutes the Eucharist. So he says for the, for the first time, um, take this, this, this bread, this is my body, and uh, given up for you uh, eat it and do this in remembrance of me. Here's my, this wine, um, take this wine. It is my blood, the blood of the covenant. Take this and um, drink it in remembrance of me. So this becomes the primary ritual of Catholics. So this is all basic stuff for, you know, third grade um, catechesis. But there's a lot of people who aren't Catholic who listen to the show. So um, I think it's just trying to explain it simply. Um, and then this is a ritual that we do in, to remember Jesus. And, um, he, we believe that he really is, comes and transforms this bread, transubstantiates, but transforms this bread into his own body. And then we eat it and this wine into his own blood. And we, we, we believe, believe that so, um, strongly as, as a reality that we honor that bread become Jesus and that wine become Jesus. Jesus, and we preserve it really carefully, and we respect it, and we um, pray in front of it, and contemplate, you know, what this mystery, and um, so it becomes like the most valuable and profound thing in the world to us. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked to Jacob about that last episode. So if you're looking for some of that, and then Jesus leaves that that uh, supper, and then goes and prays in the garden. He's arrested. He's put on trial and he goes to his, uh, his death. And so on Holy Friday yesterday, we honored the cross where he sacrificed himself, offered himself up and his sufferings and, and his very, yeah, his whole self for the salvation of the world to save the world from sin and evil and death. He destroyed all of those things. These are weird Catholic <laughs> talk, Christian talk, but um, yeah. listen to the last 500 episodes if you want to try to understand that stuff. And then part of that ritual, and then today we kind of sit in silence until Jesus rises from death in, on Easter Sunday, and we celebrate that. But the, the, the service for Friday is built around two pieces. It's the honoring the cross, and people will kiss the cross or venerate the cross, and there's ceremonies around that, veneration of the cross, and intercession for the world. Okay, so you're bringing these two things together. Prayers for uh, non-believers, non-Catholics, unity among Christians, prayers for peace in Ukraine this year, 
prayers for the whole world, prayer for, prayers for leaders, prayer for the poor. So um, it's an extended kind of intercessory time. And um, so those two pieces, and it brings together uh, St. Faustina's two pieces, Thursday, the Eucharist, mm-hmm. and Friday, suffering. Yeah. You know, the gift of suffering, sort of the, the power of suffering. And there's that profound connection between um, Jesus's, the, the offering on the altar of the suffering and th- the work that we do to try to help the world, to save the world, what Jesus is doing to save the world, and the connection between prayer as a powerful tool for salva- salvation of the world, changing the world, and the suffering of Jesus that I think can kind of help, at least help a little bit to make sense of why Catholics would say something weird like suffering is a gift and that we can offer it to God for what, you know, yeah. somehow for the salvation of the world that our offering our suffering up in prayer has an, has a powerful effect of um, possibly taking away suffering from someone else or, um, settling some say you talk about grace and conversion maybe you're praying for someone who is, wants to kill themselves mm-hmm. and they f- get this little splash of hope and it changes them someone who wants to take revenge on someone and they feel this like kind of temptation toward grace and mercy and in the mystery of how god works we're able to say let me take some of that suffering and um and suffer it myself accept my suffering and then offer it up as in some place. Maybe it's to take place of someone else's. Maybe it's just to say, God, you care about the one who's suffering so much that you pay attention to my prayers or something. I see. I still don't understand the suffering part, mm. um, but I think there's, that's built into the liturgy. Mm-hmm. It's Jesus's self offering as high priest where his suffering has made him powerful for, um, Earning grace, ah, earning is such a bad word. Um, yeah, meriting. Yeah, meriting grace, um, having his prayers answered. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I think it's so tricky. And I think to make things even trickier, quoting St. Paul here, you may be the scripture expert here can tell me where this is from. I want to say Corinthians, but I'm not positive on that. I complete what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Yeah, we. We complete. It's Colossians, yeah. Colossians, okay. Yeah, and, we make up for what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. And I love yeah. that. And I think that's so tricky because it's like, well, are you saying that Christ's suffering is lacking something? Like his death on the cross defeated death once and for all. He became sin. He was crucified to the cross in which he nailed sin to the cross. How is that lacking anything? Yeah. And so what does it mean for us then to complete or to make up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Yeah. It's hard to interpret that, isn't it? I don't know if... That was very important for my friend, Father Raymond Goronsky, and his the sort of theology of the cross. Why don't we leave the cross behind? Why don't we leave Good Friday behind? Why do mm-hmm. we have this weird masochistic kind of accept suffering and maybe even invite suffering because it's this great tool, this great wealth for prayer and for changing the world, for sharing in the mission of Jesus. So some of it has to do with we are the body of Christ. So our, we're living the life of Christ in the world. 
And then I think maybe it's either Jesus wants us to give a sh- give us a share in his suffering so that we have something to offer. Mm. Or maybe it's because we live the life of Christ through time. Mm. So maybe he has to keep on suffering. Yeah. And this his, his continued suffering is saving the world, continues to save the world in each generation or something. I don't know. That's kind of like some of the thoughts I've had about that. Yeah, no, I think, enigmatic passage. Yeah, I think so. We st- we studied this pretty heavily in um, pastoral care of the sick in um, sacraments of healing class. So confession and um, anointing of the sick. What is it? Because because oftentimes you'll be anointing someone either on their deathbed or maybe like a young child or you know a, a high schooler. You know they they have serious cancer. They have something going on. We have to anoint them. And what are you supposed to tell them? You know you know, unite your sufferings to Christ again, but what does that mean practically? And I think the route I usually take is to remember that through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, through his own suffering, he makes suffering a redemptive quality, right? And so this is uh, John Paul II, St. John Paul the Great, uh, Salvifici, or however you say that. Nice. Dolores, um, on on the suffering of Christ, right? On on the saving action of suffering, um, his encyclical about this, and he goes on to say, like, redemptive suffering. Suffering now has a redemptive quality, where Christ redeems us through suffering, and He invites us to also partake in the very act of redemption through our own sufferings. And so I think that's really what it means to offer our sufferings, to offer up our sufferings for someone else, is that we're participating in some mystical, mysterious way in the act of redemption. And I love that. Like when I say, Lord, I offer this suffering, this pain that I'm experiencing right now for Father Mike or for whomever, mm-hmm. I'm helping them through Jesus in their own kind of story of salvation, in their own redemption. Um, we participate, we complete what is lacking in Christ's sufferings through that, you know, through that redeeming quality, uh, which is just like so crazy to me. And kind of take on, St. Paul says that we're living the life of Christ. We have died with Christ, now we live with Christ. And it's almost like the most authentic kind of accepting and living through the, the life of Christ is that you have to share in that aspect of his life, which was pretty profound that, that um, this is my body, it's given up. It's a gift, myself, it's a gift. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's who he is. That's who he chose to be. And that's what would bring about the salvation of the world. So I have two other thoughts about it. One is, I don't know if you can say, like, redemptive suffering is is its own kind of concept. Like, you've just explained that pretty well. And then there's this question of vicarious suffering. So... In the, in the NICU, um, the neonatal intensive care unit, you go in and the baby's dying and the, the, the parent will tell you, I just wish I could take it. I just wish I could suffer that cancer yeah. for my child. And I don't know if this works so like automatically, but there is something I think of, I can take the suffering and suffer it for the, so that someone else doesn't suffer it. And I don't think it's real automatic, and it's certainly like hard to understand. Um, but I don't know. I don't even know if that's right. Like we use the term vicarious suffering, but does that is it like Maximilian Kolbe who says instead of that guy dying, 
I'll put my life there. Mm. And then you save someone else's life. And maybe in a spiritual way rather than a physical way. Because I've never heard that like the Green Mile, some this guy like literally breathes in other people's diseases. Yeah. Uh, but I think maybe in a spiritual way, there might be something like that. Yeah, that's a very good question. I I haven't really thought about that too much, but I do think that's parents. Parents, no one wants to see their child suffer. And I think that's very difficult for, for parents. And for a parent to bury their child is one of the most horrific things a parent would ever have to do. Um, and so I think you're right. There's, there's a certain prayer that parents make of just like, Lord, uh, can you allow me to suffer instead of my own child? And right. Moses does this, of course he, he, and we should never make this prayer by the way, but, but Moses says, um, you know, Lord save these people and blot my name out of the book of life, which should never be prayed. But I think it's an example of, uh, I want to suffer in place of these people. Uh, they they're deserving of a punishment now of course children in the NICU are not deserving of a punishment and that's where it gets really tricky I don't know if you've read this book Um, there's a great book I'd recommend it's called the pedagogy of innocent suffering and it's by Carlo Nocchi so Italian and he talks about World War II Italian chaplain and he talks about how he went out on the battlefield in um, Russia I believe and he saw terrible, terrible sufferings in his platoon. And they actually, what wound up happening is his platoon said, only one of us are going to survive. Um, we're all going to die here on the battlefield. But Father, Father Carlo, we want you to go back to Italy to be with all our, our, our wives and our children. Hmm. And so he saw these men give their lives for the sake of the war he goes back to italy and he said these children because of the loss of their families and because of the the drastic circumstances they found themselves in without a father starving they had more sufferings he said than those who died on the battlefield uh, cold and starving Hmm. why because they're innocent the pedagogy of innocent suffering Hmm. and he kind of goes through kind of what I was talking about with St. Paul, we make up what was lacking in Christ's sufferings. Mm. And he, he goes on to say that those who are innocent, those who are pure, actually partake in Christ's sufferings all the more because they're undeserving of it, just like Christ was undeserving of what he went through, um, which is really mm. powerful. But it's, again, it's just so hard and difficult to wrap our heads around that. Yeah. So I don't want to answer this question. I, I love that about mystery. This is as profound a mystery as the Eucharist. You, you're dealing with like really the heart. These three mysteries, which is the Eucharist, that Jesus is really present in this cracker. And Biscuits. you know, that's, I don't, I don't mean to be irreverent, but I mean to highlight the, the, the uh, faith that every Catholic puts into this amazing reality of the incarnation and the Eucharist. And then this, so the Eucharist, the mystery of suffering and um, uh, of suffering as a prayer that is transforming the world, redemptive suffering, and then the mystery of the resurrection. To believe these things is very counterintuitive, but real and fitting. Like it's not silly to believe these things. Faith is not an irrational belief, but it is a mystery. They're mysteries. 
there's a lot to it. It's very hard to put your brain around. It's not something you can conquer intellectually right. or logically. Okay, so this is unique to Christianity, and it's an inversion of what's natural and what's intuitive. You know, um, throughout history, religions have recognized that life is suffering and that the best thing is to try to figure out how to escape that suffering. And often these, these religions are ways to do so. Um, to deal with the fear of death and the way it affects us and the pain and loss and all these things. And there's something totally inverted here where this becomes a gift. Suffering becomes a gift um, because it is a, it's a treasury of something to offer that will transform the world. That actually You actually have something that you can change things with. And so... One one idea is that this this is an inversion of everything and a great mystery, but it's really at the heart of the Christian life, and um, so it becomes it should be very important in your life. I suggest an examine of uh, misery throughout the day. Examine of misery is like okay, I forget things, so I forget the tools that I have for prayer and uh, in this self offering, and so I should remember all my sufferings. Everything from, I don't like driving in traffic right now, or I'm afraid of um, doing a podcast and saying something embarrassing, or singing, yeah. singing at mass. I sang this Behold the Wood of the Cross yesterday, and nice. it was so scary and nerve-wracking, to much more profound things. Yeah. I lost my grandfather once upon a time, mm-hmm. and I suffer that. I still do. Friends have... Um, Friends have hurt themselves or are suffering particular things. There's brokenness in relationships and in um, and in the world. Just the, the people I love in the parish who suffer things. And I have my own brokenness. There's lots of su- sufferings. But if you can be aware of those things, then you can pray them and you can offer them up. And you can do that regularly. And then also have my list in front of me mentally, constantly, of what do I care about? What am I praying for? What do I want to see different? And what can I offer these things for? Because if you just leave it like, oh, I offered this up, I don't think that's as effective as saying, I offered this up for this lady who's dying in my parish or um, my friend who's angry with God right now or whatever it is, peace in Ukraine. And so I think you should have this, this regular reminder throughout the day, this examine of your own sufferings and then the things that you want to offer them for mm. and be particular about that. Okay, and then finally, and you can comment on either of these, um, there's, I think, something beautiful I've been reflecting on on th- how these two things, the Eucharist and the suffering, as gifts, um, as the most valuable things, even the playing field in a world that's that's fallen and is complicated by competition. So if you say, well, why is there why is there this war in Ukraine? There's lots of complicated reasons in history and everything. But to, to oversimplify, but to say something I think is true, there's competition between people. You know, there's an aggressive Russia who wants to uh, exert their power because they're like nationalists and they have the sense of they have a right to do, you know, to to um, be aggressive toward a people because they are something important in the world. And they're competing against, you know, like we don't want to be lost or forgotten. We have this place in the world and its history of who are we, reputation, um, 
power, influence, all these things. And then you have a, a, a West that Ukraine is kind of caught in between that maybe is uh, ideologically um, protecting democracy or freedom. And these things are values, um, but they're competing, right? Or like, you know, most cynically, but probably something, there's like the consumerism of we need the oil, we need the, the wheat mm. and the trade and the trade routes and all of this stuff. And ultimately there's this country caught in the middle or we're defending this little, um, this innocent kind of underdog who is just getting beat up on and we don't want a world like that. So there's competition and that's just an example, but it happens every, every, everywhere because there's haves and there's have nots. And in the recent rhetoric of our country, we talk about the 1%. 99% don't have, 1% do. And that's kind of real about economics in the world. But in the Christian life, this is totally different because the most important things are the Eucharist, the presence of Jesus in front of us. And I'll say that. I will give away everything else, but I don't won't give away that in my life. Um, that is the most valuable thing. Yeah. And I can have the Eucharist, this most valuable thing, um, this thing that satisfies more than anything else, and the other guy can, the guy who's, the guy who's crazy, the guy who's poor, the guy who's a victim of every other circumstance in the world. There is no have or have not in the Catholic um, kind of order. You, yes, you could say a part of us still wants stuff, still wants, competes for all of this stuff. But at bottom, Jesus has given us a gift that evens the, that that settles that competition. Yep. Takes that away, you know. If you got Mick Jagger saying, "I can't get no," nah, 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 nah. Uh, he, he he satisfies everyone. So you are good at singing. And then, oh boy, uh, and then with the suffering, it's like, well, people. So people want the satisfaction of the things that they really. I wish I had this, 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 and it causes problems because other other people do. Yeah. Now I have to compete. One of those with the greatest things is I wish I had something to give. And I'm realizing my people in uh, who live on the streets and in the tents and are drug addicts and all this stuff, a lot of times why they end up there and sometimes why they're there is that they feel like they have nothing to give to society. Mm. I can't contribute. People are like, get a job, idiot. And it's like, well, I don't really have anything to give. I lost the race of getting ahead, finding a career, um, being useful. And mm. so I'm just going to despair. And I'm... Uh, and this idea, though, is that there's no one in the world. Everyone has the gift and the wealth of suffering. There's not a single person, not, mm -hmm. the, not the craziest person who could never hold a job or an old person who just sits in their, you know, in their bed dying. Um, sad as those things are, those are, are you, have, you have something to give. And if we want to receive something and we want to give something, Jesus provides for every single person in the world. Mm. And I think that's really an, an amazing feature of our religion that um, is maybe underappreciated. I am just thinking about this now, so it's not like I think about this all the time, but I've really meditated on that gift that Jesus has given that is saving the world. In some way, what frustrates us and, and ruins us is our own thirst for whatever it is, wealth, power, competition. And so Jesus is taking that away. It's not perfect. If you look at the Catholic Church, we're as crazy 
sometimes as other <laughs> places. Yeah. But I do think if you look at the saints, which we're all aspiring to be and are kind of in process toward, you see this, this satisfaction with just the presence of God. I don't need anything else. And also, I have a, a profound mission. My life is a gift to the world and is transforming the world. I have a very profound meaning, and I don't need anything in order yeah. to do that. I don't need money to start a philanthropy like a nonprofit organization or to influence people. I don't need power or influence. I can just sit suffering my um, gangrene or <laughs> <laughs> Lyme disease or I don't know. Yeah. So does that make, what do you think of that kind of leveling the playing field? Is that too Marxist? I do kind of think of, you know, this is, this is in the water, these ideas. Right. And, but I think this is, you know, where we as teachers in the world, um, no, I think try to engage those ideas of the society. Right. Yeah. I think you're right on. And I think there's always tensions there as you're talking about like the, Marxism or, or communism yeah. leveling. You, there's to, always to start there. with have or have not. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by the Marxism. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, I think there's tensions there for for sure. But I I really like how you mention there's a treasury here. There's a treasury of our sufferings. Are we putting them to use? Um, and I think one of the temptations in the Christian life is to become so um, so focused on our own misery that we forget about Christ's mercy. And that's that's what I would like to connect is that misery and mercy are, mm. are often so closely linked together. I don't know about the roots of each word, but it seems like they do have a connection, um, misery and mercy. And I, I preached about this on um, John 8, the, the woman caught in adultery just a couple weeks ago, because St. Augustine says about that passage, after all the Pharisees have left, they're going to stone this woman who's caught in adultery, they all leave. And then Jesus looks at her and they're only, there's only two left. And St. Augustine says, there's only two that remain the miserable one and mercy himself Mm. and misery meets mercy. And that's where we need to be in our, our misery is when we surrender our misery, as you mentioned, doing that kind of daily examine of where am I miserable right now? And the way I would define misery is any obstacle that, prevents us from attaining heaven, from attaining Christ, from attaining union with him, anything that prevents that. And mercy then alleviates all or eliminates, alleviates or eliminates all misery, Mm. any of those obstacles. And so they go hand in hand. And I think that's where when we're doing those examines or kind of those, um, you know, maybe even writing them down, like, where am I miserable right now? Where am I not able to love God the best? Maybe it is because I'm sitting in traffic and just getting angry, Mm. you know? And it's just like, Lord, I surrender this to you. Offer this to, you know, the person in my parish or whatever's going on. Um, I love that. Yeah. So just that connection there of misery and mercy, I think are so deeply connected. And I think suffering can do two things in us. It can cause us to have a hard heart, become like Pharaoh Mm. and never repent, or it can really transform us. And that's what we're talking about today, that treasury of allowing suffering to transform us for the sake of um, becoming more unified with Christ. Beautiful. Well, thanks for this conversation about suffering. I Gotta love it. <laughs> Father Sean was a little apprehensive about having to kind of air, li- air life on uh, a podcast. So I was nervous about, like, 
I don't want to get into, hey, tell me about all of your suffering. Right. Even though I had this on my mind and I wanted to engage. So I think we did pretty good in that uh, respect. You got any shout outs? We do shout outs at the end. Shout outs. Um, I'd like to shout out to, uh, well, you guys recorded with Gregorian Rand. I'd like to shout out to them. Oh, yeah. To my pastor, Father Brian Larkin. Totally fat and lame. Old. And old. Bald. Yes. Uh, Hopefully he doesn't listen to this. I'll do, I'll do his <laughs> examine of, of misery. Of examine of misery. And Patrick Deveni. And Patrick Deveni, uh, Director of Philanthropy or Development at the parish. And I will shout out the uh, folks at St. Elizabeth of Hungary. I've had the pleasure of um, celebrating the Triduum at this little mission parish that we have connected with the cathedral in Denver and it has been a um, an adventure it's been a process and it's been really delightful I love these little moments in the Triduum where you see someone who you'd never seen crying they're connecting with something profound or this little kid smiling and having fun this you know all these little moments of like this is how much of a gift these rituals these ancient and perennial rituals are to the people and to myself i still have the the kind of thing about it's hard for me to pray them because i'm performing something and i'm thinking about the details and everything and it's there's something of that a sacrifice a priest makes to put ourselves in there but i do think there's these little moments that are breaking through and they're probably the most profound thing Mm. and i don't really need to be like kind of emotionally moved by everything that's happening or whatever I thought prayer was before. So um, anyway, shout to those folks, uh, Mary Frances, Teresa, Diane, uh, Loretta, Dolores, all those folks who are um, really working hard to make the liturgy beautiful over there. Um, That's a gift to me and a gift to our people. Beautiful. That's it. All right. God bless you, everybody. I hope you're having a great Easter or even after that. I don't know when this is going to be published. So God bless you all and uh, bless all of your suffering and your joys in your life. Thanks for joining me, Father Sean. You're Look welcome. Look forward to more. All right. Ciao. Bye.